Morning, everybody. How are you guys doing? That was weak. That was weak. But that's okay if you're not doing well. It's good to be honest. We learned that in Sunday school today. We have been working on a series of messages here. This is part nine in a Christmas series. Really? Actually, it is. The, the entire series, the whole point of this series is to understand who Jesus is. You cannot separate truth and love because it's who Jesus is. If Jesus hadn't come down as a human, we wouldn't have been able to see that in action. It's actually the premise of Christmas. That is actually what we're going to celebrate. I know it's not an Advent-y thing to, to talk about because Advent is, ah, that's fun. This hasn't been necessarily fun, but it certainly is about Jesus. Amen? <laughs> you don't even have to agree with me. That's okay. I'm just going to read the truth. Okay? So, we have been in this series of messages, and I'm going to tell you, today is probably the, the last part in this series. We've been touching on what it means for, that Jesus is the truth, what it means that Jesus is the love, what does it mean for that to be the foundation of what we believe. And when we talk about the foundation, what, what part of that foundation is Jesus? He is the cornerstone. And what does that even mean? And we, we took that and now have applied it to some hot-button topics uh, that are relevant to our, the conversations that we have in everyday life t- today. And that revolves around things such as, or things that we see in the news or whatever, um, things like feminism, abortion, universalism. Um, last week we talked about this umbrella of sexual immorality. And today we, we're actually going to just continue that conversation. Here's our theme verse. Our theme verse for this entire series, which this morning in adult Sunday school class, like no one knew this verse. So we're going to repeat it again, and uh, it's, it's scripture that we've been reading every week for the last nine weeks. But anyway, here we go. Read it with me, okay? Ephesians 4.15 says, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head, that is Christ. So we're desiring to become like Jesus We're desiring to not skip out on speaking truth, but when we do speak the truth, we want to do it in love. That's our desire, that's our goal, that's the whole, that's the premise of this entire series of messages. And if Jesus hadn't come, like we're celebrating at Christmas, we wouldn't even know how to to do this. Why don't you guys just join me in in prayer? Lord, I'm, I'm in total alignment with the things that have been sung praise and adoration of you, celebrating you, Lord, again this Christmas season when we, uh, to some degree, celebrate who you are, Lord. And we ought to do it more. Jesus, could you just be very real in our presence this morning? Bring an understanding to our minds and to our hearts. Help our ears to be open to what you are saying to us, not in a way that is rebellious or desires to push back, but in a desire, in an eagerness to hear 
what it is that you are saying, and let us be like the Berean believers who then go home and study the Scripture to see if what was said was true. Come and stir in among us, Holy Spirit. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. You know how sometimes we just read some scripture and just kind of let the scripture, I've done that in the last couple, of series, last couple of parts, we just read a scripture and then we let, it, let the scripture naturally take us to the topic it's addressing? We're going to just do that again this morning, okay? We're going to start with Leviticus. Leviticus 18.22 says, Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Leviticus 20 verse 13 says, If a man has sexual relations with a man, as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. When Scripture is using that word detestable, it's the strongest possible language to describe how God sees it. God couldn't use stronger language to describe the offense that it is to him, the sin that this is describing. It's describing the sin of homosexuality. If you read those verses in context, along with that, the assigned punishment in the Old Testament that went with it was the strongest possible punishment that a person could ever give or have or receive. The Bible clearly calls homosexuality a sin. When we run a set-free evening here in Pansy Chapel, we deal with sin. If you did not hear the sermon from last week, you actually should go and listen to it because it's the precursor to what we're talking about today. Last week, we talked about the umbrella of sexual immorality. So just for instance, when we do a set-free evening here in church, we're dealing with a, a list of about 100 sins. And then there's several lines in there that say other because it's not an exhaustive list. A part of that group of sins that we're talking about includes sexual immorality. And then underneath the umbrella of sexual immorality, in the set-free evening, I'm just going to use the set-free evening as an example of how we apply this here in Pansy Chapel, there are 12, 12 sins listed underneath that umbrella of sexual immorality. I'll give you an example of, of what some of them are. I'm not going to read all of them, but I'll give you an example of what some of them are. They're listed underneath that are sins like adultery, which would mean sex outside of a marriage, or fornication is listed there, which means sex prior to or before a marriage. Also listed under there is pornography, which we have already, we have been intentional in Pansy Chapel to deal with pornography. Steve preached a powerful message earlier this fall dealing specifically with pornography in our church. Included under that umbrella is homosexuality. Also included is lustful thoughts. Also included 
is things like dressing inappropriately as in a way to attract attention. Those are all listed as sins of sexual immorality, plus there is another six, plus there's a line there that says other, because it's not an exhaustive list. And here's what I know. I know that in Pansy Chapel, we are far more likely, and it's going to be far more common, for the sins like pornography and lustful thoughts to be rampant in our congregation far more so than sins like homosexuality. So why then, and we also talked about greed in this series, I can guarantee you a thousand percent yes that greed is far more rampant in our congregation here than homosexuality is. So why bother singling out homosexuality? Consider the mounting pressure that exists on the church to conform to the changing standards of the world around us. The stance or lack of stance that we as a church take on homosexuality is going to have an effect on us. It might even come with a cost or consequence soon. As people attending here, you would probably be interested to know what our stance is. It's a good reason to talk about it. Also consider the mounting pressure on individual Christians. Because this is an issue that gets talked about aggressively outside of our church. A lot of pressure is put on people as individuals. In particular, I'm thinking about our students and our kids and the next generation. We need to know why we believe what we believe. We need to know what the truth is on, in regards to lots of things, but including homosexuality. Where do you go to find the truth? Okay, a couple people got a good answer. The Bible. This book is God's holy and unchanging word upon which a Christian builds their entire life to obey what is written in this book is the very nature of the Christian faith Billy Graham I'm gonna give him credit here is as far as I know and if I'm wrong you can correct me but I think that Billy Graham coined this phrase the Bible says if you can imagine Billy Graham doing that, kind of thumping it from the pulpit, saying, guys, the Bible says. And then he would go on to say something, indicating that whatever the Bible says is an indicator of how we ought to live our lives because the Bible is the source of truth. 
And the Bible indicates how we ought to live in order to please and honor and obey our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we're going we're to continue to talk about this. I'm going to start with just um, mentioning a question you often hear around the topic of homosexuality, and that, and that is this, can you be born that way? Or can you be born gay? Can you be born as a homosexual? And I want to say three things in response to that particular question. One is this. The answer would be no, according to a recent scientific survey. Now hold on a second. What just happened there? Where is the source of all truth? The Bible is. As Christians, we believe what the Bible says. We say, okay, what does the Bible say in this? And therefore, that's how. But, but I just said, can you be born that way? And I'm about to address, and I'm actually going to do it. I'm, gonna, I'm talking about a specific scientific survey. Why would I do that? That scientific survey does not change how Pansy Chapel will view homosexuality. But when you and I go out into the world and talk to our neighbor who doesn't care what the Bible says, I'm going to live my life based on what Scripture says, but it's not a horrible idea for me to have in my back pocket, as it were, some scientific evidence of just maybe the person I'm talking to, they might not respect the Bible like I do. But maybe in my course of conversation, I could use something that they do respect in order to bridge a conversation. So, I'm also, in that regard, I'll refer to this scientific study that was done. I think it's very interesting. It's not done by Christians. It's not done by the church. It's done by the governments. I'll tell you about it. Three months ago, it was released. It's a study released by a group of scientists from the UK, the US, Netherlands, Australia, Sweden, and Denmark. They set out to investigate the role of genetics in sexual behavior. They're specifically looking to see if you can be born gay. They studied 500,000 people from the UK. Half a million people were studied from the UK. These people had to answer questions, very pointed personal questions, and those 500,000 people had to submit DNA samples. They compared those two to see if there's a correlation. And I'm going to read just off, this is directly off of their website, and if you're interested in the study, I can, I can show it to you. But this is what they say. Did the researchers find a specific gay gene? Not at all. On the contrary, there is no single gay gene that is linked to same-sex behavior. They go on to say that you can have influences in your life, you can have tendencies that might lead you in that direction, but you cannot be born gay. So just take that. That's just science. Stick that in your back pocket. Does it matter? I don't know. If, what if science changed their mind tomorrow? Because science actually tends to do that. Because someday soon, then someone else will do another study and then who knows, the results might be different. So what, what's the second thing you're going to say? Even if a person was 
born that way. Being born in any way has never been an obstacle for Jesus. In John chapter 9, there's a story of a man born blind. And when Jesus looks at that man and his disciples ask questions of why was he born that way, Jesus just simply said, this man, this was done so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. And then in that case of the blind man, Jesus heals him. How a person is born, God might have a purpose for it, and that's not an obstacle for Jesus. Here's the third thing I want to say about that. In regards to whether or not you can be born gay, even if a person feels like that, or it seems like that, the very nature of the Christian faith, when Jesus talked to Nicodemus, he said, you must be born again. When a person leaves everything that they have and every, everything that they are at the foot of Jesus, they actually become a new person. It's the nature of the Christian faith to be born again. So it is incorrect to say that people are born that way. And while some people choose the gay lifestyle, it is also incorrect to say that all homosexuals have chosen to be gay. Let me explain that. People typically don't choose who they are attracted to. Some people who struggle with same-sex attractions desperately don't want those same-sex attractions, yet they feel stuck and trapped. And then there's a complexity that gets mixed into that because ex experimenting with those kinds of attractions can cultivate an appetite. Circumstances and external factors contribute to that attraction. And in some cases it can even be more of an emotional attachment than it is a physical or sexual attraction. Last week, last week I had an interesting meeting with a gentleman I had not met before. His name is Bob Fife. He lived, he was active in the gay lifestyle in Toronto for 20 years. He now walks with Jesus, lives in freedom, and has a ministry and a desire to help people who struggle with homosexuality. According to him, according to other professional counselors and many testimonies I've heard, I want to mention four common triggers that lend themselves to leading somebody in the direction of, or giving somebody tendencies toward homosexuality.
sexual abuse in someone's past can be a trigger. The feelings that somebody has of feelings, I'm going to use the word unwanted, but it's not a strong enough word. When somebody grows up, lives with that understanding, it feels like to them like that's who they are. There is a craving that needs to be filled. Pornography can be a trigger. Neglect of a parent can be a trigger. That feeling of being unloved, even if it isn't entirely true and part of it is a perception, is a powerful trigger. Feelings of never measuring up. Someone who desires to be a man and yet feels like they never are adequate. Someone who desires to be a woman and yet feels like they are never adequate and never going to measure up. Some of those feelings can contribute towards tendencies towards homosexuality. You know what's interesting about all of those triggers? They all have to do with other people. Those living in a gay-affirming lifestyle will almost always have someone that they need to forgive. Here's what I think is interesting and relevant. I don't know that we're doing this as good as we ought to. It's not what I'm saying. But when the church provides a place for kids of a single parent to interact with other adults in a healthy, wholesome manner that is not completely unrelated to some of these triggers of homosexuality. When the church coaches people in walking through forgiveness, very practical steps to take in that. When the church enriches, puts an effort into enriching marriages, putting on seminars so that moms and dads will be working together. When we have set frees that deliver people from generational bondages and burdens of sin, those things are not completely unrelated to these triggers that can lead to homosexuality. Not to mention the emotional wholeness, the emotional healing that comes when somebody actually walks with Jesus in a personal and real and genuine way. Those things, those intentional things that we do as a church, they actually affect other people. There's a residual effect from that. Those are, small, those are not small things. They're not completely unrelated to homosexuality. Those two verses describe, in short, the Old Testament's view of homosexuality. What's the, what's the common objection? It's the Old Testament. According to Jewish tradition, there's like 613 laws. We don't apply them all today. Why would we apply that one? Very good question. For instance, <laughs> we don't sacrifice lambs on the front yard of Pansy Chapel here. It's an Old Testament law. We don't require that in order for membership here in Pansy Chapel, you have to circumcise your kids. But it's an Old Testament law. 
We don't require that when you build a house, you have to build a fence around your roof. But it's an Old Testament law. So if we don't apply those laws, why would we apply this one? That's a relevant question, and you need to know the answer. An easy way to understand the answer to that question is that if you take the 613 laws in the Old Testament, and if you divide them into four categories to help you understand, it becomes clear which ones apply. Because when Jesus came, he said he didn't come to abolish the law, he actually came to uphold it. How does that work? Because we don't uphold the entire law. We only, we, it's almost as though Christianity picks certain laws that apply and some that don't. It's exactly what's happening, but there's a reason for it. I'll tell you why. If you take all those 613 laws and divide them into four categories, it becomes easier to understand. Category number one is, the, the categories are the ceremonial laws, civic laws, separation laws, and moral laws. Ceremonial laws, in the Old Testament, they, they had to do things like sacrifice calves and goats and lambs, the shedding of blood in order to receive forgiveness for their sin. That was before Jesus. All of those ceremonial laws are, are designed to lead us to who? Jesus. We no longer have to apply any of the ceremonial laws because Jesus came. Merry Christmas. Amen? Amen. Then there's separation laws. There are some laws that God gave to the Israelite people because they were going into a, a surrounding, a place surrounded by neighbors, neighboring nations, and he gave them specific laws to identify them as God's people. Circumcision is a good example of that. That is for them to show them separate from their neighbors. A law, those laws for the Israelites in the Old Testament, which no longer apply to us today. The New Testament actually makes that really clear, specifically in regard to circumcision. Then you have some laws that are civic laws, laws that God gave to Moses, and, and, and they were very practical laws, a little bit like when you go to build a house now, you have to build your house to, to, uh, to code. God gave Moses some of that building code, some of the criminal code. Those don't apply either, such as if you steal a sheep, you have to pay five sheep back. That's a law. When you build a house, you have to build a fence around it. That was a civic law. It's, it's written in the Old Testament, but we don't apply it today because we're, that was designed for the Israelites in their time. It's actually really interesting. You can actually compare some of the Old Testament law to some of the laws of neighboring countries. I think it's called the Code of, Code of Hammurabi. Uh, shows neighboring countries' code. It's actually very interesting, the difference. Topic for another day. The fourth category is moral laws. The moral laws from the Old Testament still apply today. There's three tests that you can apply to it, to a law, to see if it's actually a moral law. One is, does it reflect the characteristic of Does it reflect characteristics of God? In other words, let's take an easy one. Up here we have two characteristics of God. Amen? So, uh, uh, an Old Testament law like do not lie. Does it still apply today? Yeah. So why do you just pick and choose that one? 
it reflects God's character. Or honor your father and mother. Does that reflect God's love? Of course it does. It's also reflected in the New Testament. The second test is this. Does it define how to love your neighbor? In other words, don't covet. Does it still apply today? Yes, it does. Do not commit adultery. Does it still apply today? It does, because it actually reflects not only God's character, but how to treat your neighbor. Don't steal. It very much affects your neighbor, right? It still applies today. It, it, it fits that test. The third test to see if it's a moral law is this. Is it universal? In other words, does it apply not only to the Israelites in the Old Testament, but also to their neighbors, and in, in fact, all times, including the New Testament? Then we know it's a universal law. It applies to all people at all times. God didn't get angry with the Amalekites for eating unclean animals. But he did promise to punish the Amalekites for taking advantage of the weak and the sick. Isn't that interesting? That's a universal law, how we treat other people. Consider this. God never got angry at Sodom for not building a fence on their roof. He didn't punish Gomorrah for not circumcising their kids. But he did punish them for sexual perversion, including homosexuality. Homosexuality is included in those laws that distorts the character, the truth, and love of God and goes directly against God's plan for how to love and show love for your neighbor. And it's obviously universal in the Old Testament, and it shows up in the New Testament. So let's just read what it says in the New Testament. Romans 1. You should really read 18 to 32, but I'm just going to read a couple of verses. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They, they traded the truth about God for a, for a lie. So they worshipped and served the things God created instead of the Creator Himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. When it talks about they traded the truth about God for a lie, a very basic understanding of human biology tells you that you need a male and a female to procreate, and that was God's design. There's an element of truth there about God which you don't need a Bible to understand. There's an obvious pattern of design. And as we keep on reading, I want you to notice that in the next verse, not only is homosexuality addressed as in general, but specifically both gay and lesbianism. Let's read. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. 
Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Verse 32 says this, They know God's justice requires that those who do, such, do these things deserve to die. I just want to stop there for a second. When he says such bold language as deserve to die, this doesn't indicate how we treat our neighbors who struggle or engage in homosexuality. This is a reference to the Old Testament where we already said God uses the strongest language and strongest punishment when he's thinking about homosexuality. Jesus will be our best example going forward, but I want you to understand what that's talking about when it says deserve to die. Yet, they do them anyways. And worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. It's interesting to me that in Romans 1, when Paul is writing this many years ago, it was common for those who live in this way to encourage others to do them too. Do you see that in our world today? We'll read 1 Timothy 1 verse 10 as well. The law is for people who are sexually immoral or who practice homosexuality or are slave traders, liars, promise breakers, or who do anything else that contradicts the wholesome teaching that comes from the glorious good news entrusted to me by our blessed God. Not only does the Old Testament clearly define homosexuality as a sin, but so does the New Testament. I want to point out that it's common, in my experience, it's common to, to hear the word identity or identify in the same paragraph, as it were, in discussions about things related to LGBTQ. It's an identity issue. It's an identity question. If you think about where we've come from in this series of sermons, where ought a Christian to get their identity? The name itself is a little bit of a clue. Where should a Christian get their identity? Christ. When we talked about abortion in part five, when we talked about feminism in part six, when we talked about Jesus as the cornerstone in part three, those are all referencing where we get our identity as Christians. But there is a temptation to hide behind our identity or perceived identity in ourselves. 
And sometimes we hear words like, it feels so good it can't be wrong. Or, but nobody is getting hurt. In context of understanding from Scripture, those kinds of words do not define sin. And they never will. Where do we go for a definition of sin? We understand what Scripture says. Let me give you an example I'm going to use instead of referring to, again to homosexuality. I'm just going to use an example of personality, okay? Let's just think about somebody who's got a, a characteristic in their personality of being incredibly angry or brash. You guys know anybody like that? Would it be helpful if I gave you a name from somebody from a congregation? Or? No. <laughs> I'm so tempted to throw out a name right now, but... People in Sunday school will understand this. I'm very tempted to throw out a name right now that actually wouldn't be true, but it would be funny, right? I'll just, anybody in Sunday school will know exactly what I'm thinking about. Anyway, let's, I'll just leave it there. Because the same thing happened to, to, to me in reverse in Sunday school, and if you weren't there, you, you won't have got that. Anyway. So let's just imagine this person who is really angry and really brash, and they say, get used to it. It's just my personality. And they use that line to excuse their, their bad behavior and their selfish desires. We need to remember that our personalities are broken. Some of what we just brush off as, hey, that's how God made me, might actually be something that's broken in me. Here's a test. If our thoughts or our attitudes, actions, behaviors, even your desires, if they don't line up with Scripture or God's character, then it needs to change. Period. Even if it feels to you like it's who you are. That truth applies to far more things than only homosexuality. Jesus loves you, but he didn't come to affirm who you are. He came to transform who you are. That is the principle we see in Scripture over and over. I'll give you a smattering, kind of a little sampling of Scriptures. In the New Testament, we are being transformed into His image. That's 2 Corinthians. In Galatians, it says, Christ is being formed in you. Philippians says, I want to know Christ. In fact, Paul says He is becoming like Him. In Romans 12, start with Ephesians 4.15. You guys should know this verse already. We will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of Him who is the head, that is Christ. That's the nature of the Christian life. In a New Testament living is to be transformed to become more like Christ. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be 
transformed. This is the nature of Christianity in the scriptures. That list could go on. So what kind of response should individual Christians take towards homosexuality? What kind of a response should Pansy Chapel take towards either homosexuality, as though in reference to maybe the topic or issue, or in regards to homosexuals as people? I desire that when someone confesses a sexual sin or is caught in a sexual sin, even if I cannot fully relate or understand that as a church and as an individual, that I would respond like Jesus did in John chapter 8. I'm going to read that story to you, and then we'll discuss that. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. Who would like to know what he was writing? That will be a question I have for him. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. In regards to truth, were the Pharisees correct in their understanding that the Old Testament law required the harshest of penalties towards sexual sin? That is the nature of truth. To Jesus was there in the Old Testament. They were not incorrect. But Jesus also demonstrates the most incredible amount of love. How did Jesus show love for this woman? Do you notice that in that moment when she encounters Jesus, she will not have felt condemned. Convicted? Absolutely. Condemned? No. In fact, she will have felt cared for in the presence of Jesus. I'm going to use another word which I think is the most powerful thing. She, I believe it's clear in Scripture that she even felt safe in His presence as though she was protected. But notice, and that's the love of Jesus. But notice 
that at no point did Jesus ever say, because I love you, it's okay to sin. Or he also didn't say, because I love you, I'm going to change the definition of sin. He did not affirm her sin. He did not say, I came to die for you so that you could stay as you are. What he essentially is telling her that lines up with a host of other scriptures is that I came to die for you so that you can conform to who I am. And I'm going to love you along the way. Because Jesus is the cornerstone, not us. You cannot separate truth and love when you understand who Jesus is. Because he is both, he operates in both, and he is both. This idea of conforming our lives to him applies to homosexuality. But certainly not only homosexuality, it applies to every other sin. We've already talked about some of them. That applies to all of us, from false religions to greed to the whole list of sins that we could go on and on. I want to read for you, probably, when I think about the topic of homosexuality in Scripture, this is probably the most encouraging verse in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. If I start crying when I read this verse, it's because I see pictures of people's faces in my mind. Don't you realize that when those who do wrong, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin, or who worship idols, or commit adultery, or are male prostitutes, or practice homosexuality, or are thieves, or greedy people, or drunkards, or are abusive, or cheat people, None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. In verse 11, he says, Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I love it that he uses the word were in there. The, this is the NLT. The NIV would say, such were some of you. Still using that word were because it's, it's more than just that they, these people did some of those things. This is actually who they were. Their identities were wrapped up in these things. That's who they were. But you were cleansed and made holy made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So here's, <laughs> here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you guys an invitation. On Thursday evening, because you don't even have to respond to the invitation right now, you can just, uh, this is totally up to you. Thursday evening, I want to watch a documentary here in church. The documentary is called Such Were Some of You. We've played it in church before. It's been a number of years. 
It came out in 2014, so it's five years old. In today's day and age, that seems like it's really old. But that documentary includes the testimony of 29 different people who formerly were active in the gay or lesbian lifestyle and who have found freedom in Jesus. What happens when you see people's faces is that it changes this from being a discussion around a topic or an issue as though it were a thing to talk about, and it changes it to becoming people. That is how we can learn to think like Jesus thinks. He sees people. It's a documentary full of stories of people accepting Jesus. These people continue to struggle, but their allegiance changes. Their changes didn't come overnight. Their changes often involve a process, but the process for them starts the same as it does for every one of us. It starts with submitting to Jesus as the cornerstone. And in that particular documentary, I think it's especially fascinating to hear the testimonies of those people who have never been to Pansy Chapel, but they talk about experiencing the love of Jesus. It's not just a head knowledge. It's not just an intellectual concept. They actually experience Jesus. Some of them with tears in their eyes have experienced his love. They even talk about how he, get this, Hold on to your seats until the feeling will go away, right? God spoke to them and told them how much he loves them. How they listened to his voice. So that's going to, I'm going to watch that documentary. And if I'm all by myself, that's fine. That's really good. So I don't, that's okay. If there is 15 or less people on Thursday night at 7 p.m., if there's 15 or less We're going to watch it in class five, okay? That little, the biggest classroom we have. If there's more than 15 people, then we're going to watch it in here. So you don't have to RSVP, nothing. Uh, You can just come. Thursday at 7 p.m. Also, if you're running a Bible study group, and you would prefer that your Bible study group just stays as your Bible study group and watches the same documentary, you can watch it for free online. This is not... You don't have to pay any money. You can watch it for free. You can do that at home. You could even do it with your kids, although you should maybe watch it first. Thursday at 7. Email me if you want the link for your Bible study group. Maybe you've never experienced freedom in Jesus. Maybe you are here today and you're a bit more like a Pharisee than anybody else. You're like the Pharisee who emphasizes and actually is hard on truth and a little light on love. You need to get on your knees and understand that Jesus is the cornerstone. Maybe you're somebody here who is really heavy on love and you know how to love people, but you've been a little light on truth. You need to get on your knees and understand that Jesus is the cornerstone. Maybe You're here today, you might have been coming here for a long time, and you struggle with homosexual tendencies, and you're sick of living a double life. We might not understand it, 
but we love you just where you're at. And we, I, want to help you feel safe and want to help you as you do what we all need to do, and that is get on our knees and submit to Jesus as the cornerstone. That's the nature of this entire series of messages. So I'm going to give you a second invitation just to join me right now on your knees in submission to Jesus. Just where you are. It's going to be a little... If it doesn't work in your chairs, that's okay. I'm going to get on my knees. If you can join me, you're welcome to it. I'm going to get on my knees and close in prayer. If you guys want to, you're welcome to join me on Thursday at 7. If you agree with the words prayed in this prayer, if you agree with specific words, you can even say amen or yes, Jesus, just in a quiet way of verbally right where you're at during the prayer. And if you agree with with the entire prayer, you can just say amen out loud at the end. It will let Jesus and everybody know that you agree. Jesus, with our hearts, Submitted to you, just like our knees are submitted to you right now. I desire, Jesus, for you to be my Lord, for you to be my Savior. I desire, Jesus, to let go of who I am, to let go of who I want to be, to let go of my selfish desires. I desire to allow myself to be conformed and transformed to your standard. I want to be like you, Jesus. Please help me and grow me in your incredibly loving and truthful way. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.